of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Happy 2020, everyone, and welcome to a numerically congruent episode 22. At the moment, the U.S. national debt stands at about $24 trillion. I was really hoping it would be $20 trillion, $200 billion to keep with the number theme, but alas. But it is just a shade larger than the U.S. economy in total, and this has some folks rightfully worried. Now, the politically convenient arguments are to either raise taxes on people who aren't you or cut spending on government services you may not use, but neither appear to be able to get the job done. So. This month, we're going to discuss the subject of our national debt. Should we care? And if so, how much? So to kick things off, I invited David Thompson, assistant professor of history at Sacred Heart University and author of the book, Bonds of War, The Evolution of Global Financial Markets in the Civil War Era. I first came across David's work when he penned an op-ed for the Washington Post, providing some historical reference for our current debate over the debt ceiling. And I really wanted his help in putting our current debt situation in context. So as we go through the episode, I want you to ask yourself one question. When the US debt was historically at its lowest point, would you want to live then? I'll be back at the end to explain my answer. What brought us together was this article you wrote back in 2017 in the Washington Post, and it had to deal with the political brinksmanship going on around raising the debt ceiling. And I want to get to that point, but before we do that, I'd really like to give the folks listening a clear understanding as to kind of the role debt has played historically. If you don't mind, could you start out with the very origins of U.S. debt, kind of when we first started thinking about the concept and what the original intent of it was? Uh, Debt is a, you know, I'm obviously biased, but debt to me is integral to the American experience. And I think it's one of those things that we tend to forget about uh, in the uh, contemporary landscape, aside from two factors. You've got those that are fixated on that national debt clock that's constantly ticking. But then for everybody else, it's this, you know, the drama, if you will, around debt ceiling uh, and whether or not you're going to raise it, right? But beyond that, I think a lot of folks tend to, you know, overlook it um, or it's just not part of their daily life. And I, I, I can't really fault them for that, even though debt kind of permeates all of our lives in different ways, shapes, and forms, right? Aside from the national debt. But The national debt itself for the United States, yeah, it goes back to the origins, right? So it's we're rewinding the clock back to 1790. Uh, You've got your first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, who really posits an idea that the United States government should absorb all the debt of the United States of America, uh, not only the federal, but as well as the state debt, right? So you've got uh, various states that have about $25 million worth of debt as a result of the Revolutionary War. And he says, we've got to absorb that and pay it off, as well as the federal debt. And you have to pay it off you know, at face value, right? So full funding and assumption becomes the phrase that Hamilton uses. Uh, and, and the reason why he kind of pushes this idea is he says, if we want to borrow in the future, 
right? You actually have to, you know, pay up, honor your debts. So uh, the fact that a lot of this money is in the hands of uh, various foreign entities, so a lot of Dutch creditors, a lot of Spanish creditors, uh, the French government says, if we ever want to go back to those wells, we need to make sure that we pay it off. Uh, and this becomes a content- point of contention for Hamilton, uh, particularly with uh, Thomas Jefferson. And of course, I, this actually was made kind of, it was rekindled uh, awareness, I guess, as a result of the Hamilton musical. It's actually worked mm-hmm. in there. Uh, you know, so the whole time when they're talking about the room where it happens, a pretty prominent song in the show by Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, you know, the whole idea that, you know, Washington, D.C. is the capital is tied to debt, right? So the deal is made that, yes, the federal government will assume all state debt. Uh, it'll pay off all federal debt at face value, even though at the time it was trading well below it on exchanges. Mm-hmm. But yeah. in return, you're going to have a capital that is going to be further south. So at this point, uh, the capital of the United States has been briefly in Philadelphia. It was in New York. Uh, the agreement's made. It's relocated back to Philadelphia for about 10 years. And then, uh, you know, what becomes known as Washington, D.C., uh, our modern capital, comes out of this debt debate, if you will. So uh, the earliest days of the republic uh, are tied to this question of debt. And uh, at that point, right, you, you are going to see debt uh, numbering, you know, potentially as high as $75 million for the United States. Uh, it's mm-hmm. about 30% of gross domestic product, right? Which is a really okay. great benchmark, right? To look at, you know, the debt, right? So we'll probably talk a few times about it today. You know, there have been times, for instance, when debt is over 100% of GDP. I'll post that chart in the in the show notes as well, uh, because it's it's really fascinating to see, you know, number one, kind of where it starts, but number two, the the areas where it starts to spike and like and and the reasons around that. Um, quick question before we yeah. jump into that is you, know, you mentioned so DC was moved further south as part of the debt. Like why was that? What 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 did that solve? Well, first, I mean, for some Virginians, we have to remember this is we're talking late 1700s, right? So a trip, you know, up the eastern seaboard uh, is not exactly the easiest. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so if you're, you know, it's a sizable investment. If you are, you're not just shooting up for a long weekend or for the week and dipping back to your district, for instance, if you're a congressman, right, you're going for months at a time. Uh, And Virginia is the largest colony at this point and now state, and they wanted it closer to home. So the Thomas Jefferson's, the James Madison's, they're the two chief architects behind this, um, are going to be the ones that push for this. Hamilton, in his opinion at the time, uh, doesn't think where the capital is really matters. Yeah, uh, He thinks as long as New York City remains kind of a financial powerhouse, Philadelphia is still very important as well. But essentially, mm-hmm. as the, the, the capital is focused elsewhere, you know, the mm-hmm. seat of government is, relatively speaking, less important in his mm-hmm. mind. So he was willing to concede that uh, in, in return for, you know, uh, making sure that uh, this debt is fully uh, assumed, which is is a is a big thing. Just to point out, you know, this idea of full funding, right? So there's the assumption part, assuming the state debt, but paying it off at face value uh, is no small thing. And the reason why Jefferson and some others are really reticent about this is the fact that 
so some Continental soldiers had been paid towards the end of the war at times in Continental debt, right? So IOUs, effectively bonds, uh, that they had sold to speculators, right? So they, they had no illusion that this debt might ever be honored, right? Or certainly not for, the, for what they could get at that exact moment. So Hamilton's making all this noise. We have to honor the debt because we need to honor, you know, our word to these soldiers. And Jefferson, you know, to put a 21st century spin on it, says you're full of it, right? That mo- most of this debt is no longer in those people's hands, right? It's in the hands of your friends in New York. So don't pretend like this is some sort of, you know, great sacrifice we're making and, th- and that we're being honorable here, right? You're trying to help your friends, uh, and this becomes, once again, another point of contention, right? It builds into the 1790s, right? Um, with things like the, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion, right? Which is yeah. an anti-tax rebellion, right? So we just fought a war, in part, that was uh, anti-tax, in part, right? So ta- no taxation without representation. I think, you know, anybody who remembers something from, you know, first grade or second grade, uh, you know, early history classes, especially in New England, you learned about that. And that's what was fascinating to me is when I was doing the research for this, one of the things I discovered, which I didn't know, is that there was no real, there, there weren't taxes effectively or not in the manner we know them. So you know, my understanding is the government funded itself through either import duties and sales taxes. Is that right? Yeah, as well as land sales. You know, we, that, that's something that you shouldn't, you know, um, avoid or, or overlook either uh, in the sense that land sales are, are, are pretty important in the antebellum period uh, and even into the postbellum period. Uh, although there's efforts made after the Civil War for certain elements of land to be given away for free or certain amounts with things like the Homestead Act, uh, there's still a lot of land sales, right? So that's helping to fill government coffers. But the first real income tax, for instance, doesn't occur until 1862. Uh, you know, the, the second full year, if you will, of the Civil War. So the antebellum period, uh, there we don't have a lot of taxation. Now, just because we don't have a lot of taxation does not mean that it's not on people's minds, particularly around the tariff issue. Um, you know, if we if I had mentioned tariffs probably four or five years ago, you know, people are going to tune out. They're going to say that that, you know, they're that that's a lost uh, or of a bygone era. Uh, but tariffs, of course, are now relevant again. We have discussions around things like "quote unquote" trade wars uh, with various nations. Those are tied to tariffs. So, uh, and you want to talk about one of the biggest issues in the antebellum period? It's tariff debates and tariff policy. It's not the sexiest topic. Uh, you, you know, you're not going to see people thumbing through those books uh, and, and and running to the bookstore or online to find those tariff books, but it's a huge topic in Congress because it had such a um, divide, if you will, geographically. You have so many Southerners that are, are, are vehemently against tariffs in the antebellum period because they believe that they are going to face repercussions, particularly with cotton exports mm-hmm. uh, to Europe. Uh, If we have high tariffs, Northerners, on the other hand, with exceptions, of course, but Northerners, on the other hand, are are more in favor of higher tariffs. Uh, So you see tariffs kind of cycle up and down through the antebellum period. You have famous tariffs like the one known as the Tariff of Abominations. Mm -hmm. That's going to be passed in the antebellum period. So tariffs, if you want to talk about taxes in a sense, are very important in the antebellum period. 
I want to get to the Civil War because that's really, you know, and again, for the for the folks who are listening and maybe not looking at the chart, you know, with our debt, it kind of it goes down and it keeps going down at almost to the point where it disappears on the chart until the Civil War. But there's a period before that, that was the centerpiece of your article in the Washington Post that talks about this massive period of default right around the time of the 1840s. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and this is actually the topic of, of my next book and, and it's something that I find fascinating, uh, is that we do have uh, a series of states, uh, as well as future states, Mm -hmm. right? So the future state of Florida, it's still a territory at this point, but you have uh, states that will default. That is, they refuse to honor their debt payments in the Mm -hmm. early 1840s. Um, and the reason for this, right, the, the reason why they have such high debt for some of these states is, uh, you know, as they start to look at internal improvements and trying to modify, particularly some of these southern states, uh, they are very opposed to things like taxation, as we've already discussed, especially at the state level. So there's a lot of debt issued by state chartered banks, right? So the mm-hmm. state of Louisiana, for instance, would charter a bank who is then going to issue debt. Uh, and for many of these states, so, you know, th- there's this huge explosion in debt, uh, something like $50 million worth of new debt is issued uh, from 1837 to 1839 mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. And for a while, this debt is purchased. Uh, and a lot of these uh, purchases are taking place in Europe, right? So Europe was always an easy place to try to offload American debt during this period, uh, in part because... Uh, you know, there's a lot of European wars at the time. So, you know, what's one of the most inconvenient things if you're a financier is your country declares war on another European nation. You need to offload that debt. Was part of the reason, just to make sure I understand here. So let's say I'm in France and France has gotten in another war with Spain or with England or whatever. I basically want to diversify my assets. So I don't want everything in French currency because who knows? Who knows? Whether we're gonna, who knows whether <laughs> yeah. we're going to be spending pesos in another uh, in another ten years? And, and it's worth rel- noting, relatively speaking, and this is especially the case during the Civil War, but even in that 1840s period, mm-hmm. most American debt that's being issued, the interest rate on that debt is higher than what you could garner for a lot of European securities. Because so it's speculative. Of, yeah, it is. Like we're still. Is it fair to say we're kind of still an emerging economy at that point? Is yeah, that fair? Oh, absolutely, or, okay. absolutely, right? Especially yeah. relative to other more established European, you know, powerhouses, if you will, particularly the British, as well as the French, mm-hmm. even the Dutch, right? It's past their heyday, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. certainly as a colonial superpower, but they're still big on the financial front. Amsterdam is still a huge exchange. So, uh, but, so what happens in the 1840s is many of these states all of a sudden they can't make their interest payments. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, many of them are very Ill, ill-timed. Some of this is a product of the fact that the panic of 1837 is quite a hangover for the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so many of these states, as opposed to, um, you know, raising taxes or, or something, uh, say, you know what, we're not going to honor this debt. We're going to default mm-hmm. on this debt. And... Yeah. Uh, some states, they do this temporarily. Other states never honor that debt. Um, you know, great example of that is Mississippi. 
Uh, it actually, the most recent Supreme Court case on the matter, there's been several. The most mm-hmm. recent one was uh, decided, ruled on in the 1990s. Real, and this is for debt in the eighteen in eighteen forty. Correct. Yep. And it was a, it was a suit brought on behalf of European creditors. So this is a hundred and fifty year old suit. Yeah. We all hear that story of you know somebody who you know let's say gets behind in their student loans, mm-hmm. and then the student loan company sells it to some maybe dubious collections organization sure. that then goes and collects it. And then if they can't do anything, they sell it to somebody else. So effectively, like this is a buck that's been passed for 150 years and finally finds itself in court in 1990. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <sighs> wow. So, um, but it's a really big deal in the 1840s. Yeah. Uh, apparently in the 1990s too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, you know, yeah. And, yeah. And it's, it's that they claim to be making these suits on behalf of, uh, clients effectively yeah. who want their money, uh, right? That they that 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 somebody's great great grandparent uh, invested uh, yeah. in the state of Mississippi. Let's just use that as an example because that's that's what we're talking about in the nineties. Yeah. But it's you know Mississippi becomes rather famous because one of the ardent kind of defenders of repudiation at the time is uh, Jefferson Davis, right? Who becomes mm-hmm. the future president of the confederacy during the civil war uh but in the 1840s he defends the right of mississippi to repudiate these debts right and this is a bond right this isn't some like money you're pumping into a startup that doesn't pan out right? yeah. this is this is you know it's state debt uh you know and and so you you believe that you're going to be honored and it gets complicated because many state legislators are actually on the boards of some of these banks Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it just gets kind of all tied up together uh, in that regard. And we see it happen again after the Civil War in the 1870s, uh, when you have a bunch of other states that will also repudiate. Um, and before the Civil War, it's in the North and the South. So it's not just Southern states. There are some Northern states as well. Pennsylvania is perhaps the most uh, famous, infamous, if you will. To make sure I, I understand, everybody listening understands, how would a state typically fund the payment of this debt? Or how would they finance those payments typically? Truth be told, what are they doing? They're relying on selling other iterations, other generations of debt to finance past versions, right? It's not sustainable. And, the, and they kind of know it. But, the, you know, there's this belief that it may work out for them in the end. And obviously, it, it does not. Um, Got it. Yeah. So I, I just, you know, I, I can't resist. I just said this one quote that comes to mind, right? There's mm-hmm. this minister in London in 1844. His name's Sidney Smith. Uh, and he is the canon of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which is a very famous cathedral. Anybody's ever been to London, you walk by it today. And in 1844, he had a thousand pounds worth of Pennsylvania state debt. And he, he wrote to Congress about this because he was so upset that Pennsylvania refused to honor his debt. And he said, I have never met a Pennsylvanian at a London dinner without feeling a disposition to seize and divide him. How such a man can set himself down at an English table without feeling that he owes two or three pounds to every man in company. I am at a loss to convive. He has no more right to eat with honest men than a leper has to eat with a clean man. So, I mean, it's just this. And so partly why this repudiation ultimately ends is in part 
in part pressure by European banks. It's not the federal government. The federal government tries to intervene, but they say these are states can choose to make their own decisions. The federal mm-hmm. government will hurt. Uh, a couple of years later, they go to Europe to try to get uh, a loan, effectively, and uh, one of the largest banks in the, the largest bank in the world at the time, the Rothschilds, say no. Right? Your states aren't honoring their debt. We're not going to give you money. Uh, what's to say that you're not going to default? So yeah. um, it becomes a problem for the federal government. But ultimately, you have many European governments. They essentially they hire lobbyists to go back to the United States. They work with state legislatures. Um, they connect with influential ministers who you know are giving sermons to some of these legislators. Yeah. Uh, and talking about honoring your debt, right? Biblical passages that are going to work and kind of make that make that kind of connect, if they will. And so ultimately, these states start to pay it back. But it's quite a moment in the 1840s. Um, it's not the last time we see states or countries repudiating debt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was for the time period. It was it was quite remarkable, particularly when you have a stable federal government. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like you're seeing somebody seizing power and a uh, military coup or something like that. So the fact that you have a stable federal government uh, and you have states that are refusing to honor their debt issuance, it was, it was quite remarkable for the time. Yeah. And, and there are two things I'd like to highlight here. First off is that you have foreign creditors effectively launching an ad campaign or a marketing campaign to get their debt repaid. And it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the campaign that was run a couple years back by, I think it was hedge fund managers effectively over Puerto Rican debt. Yeah. And, and this big effort to, again, try and turn public opinion in their favor when it comes to the terms Puerto Rico would have to have to abide by in repayment of their debt. The other thing I think is worth highlighting is this is a time, too, in the country where the relationship between the states and the federal government and the level of, let's call it, sovereignty states have is still relatively large, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. you know, today, for example, states can't default on their debt. Illinois right. can't just decide I'm not going to pay, right. for example, uh, their debt. However, at that time, that was perfectly kosher, right? Well, I mean, the federal government's not pleased about it at the time, yeah. if, you, if you read the correspondence, but they do feel powerless. Yeah. They, they do feel that they cannot uh, force these states to comply. So we have this period of time, all the states default. Uh, there's there's a huge issue with uh, the U.S. the creditworthiness of the entire United States abroad. What are some of the after effects of that? Well, I think it it, it pulls us into the Civil War, and I think okay. that's where you have real concerns when the war starts on the side of the United States government of how they're going to fund it, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 keeping in mind that it's they're not that far removed from these events in the 1840s. So mm-hmm. the federal government's been able to get money uh, since these defaults in the 1840s, but I mean, it was a small federal government. It wasn't needing these huge loans uh, mm-hmm. in order to actually function, right? They're able to bring in enough through, t- especially tariff 
uh, revenues that are coming in from these import duties, you know, they're able to function. Uh, the war is going to, you know, upend all of this uh, for a variety of reasons, but obviously it costs a lot of money to run these wars, right? So the, you know, by the end of the civil war, uh, the federal government is going to spend uh, their annual budget of 1860, the year before the war, uh, in three weeks by 1865, right? Yeah. So you have to imagine, right, this is drastic expansion in overall costs, millions mm-hmm. of dollars a day. Uh, and you can't do that just on tariffs, right? They pass a new tariff, the moral tariff to try to do this, but you also have fewer ports, right? The Southern ports are no longer collecting tariffs for you. So mm-hmm. it's just your major Northern ports. So uh, income tax is passed during the war uh, in 1862. It's amended several times during the war, uh, but it is not an a income tax that is applying to each and every person. Um, I don't want to call it like a millionaire's tax, right? But uh, you know, the first iteration of it, you had to have a pretty high income, right? Uh, you know, taxes for you know incomes north of ten thousand dollars when you know your average income is maybe three hundred fifty, four hundred dollars. Well, and and I think it's worth noting too. You know, we live in a day and age where every transaction we do is is documented and easily accessible by anyone anywhere in the country or the right. world, for that matter. Back then. I'd imagine you had to have a lot of money to even show up on the radar for most people. Is that fair? Yeah, although you'd be surprised. I mean, this is the, the IRS is created at this time. And one thing that I got a kick out of with my first book, which was on Civil War debt, mm-hmm. was the fact that I was looking at some records in New Orleans, right? So New Orleans is the largest city in the Confederacy. Uh, New Orleans falls to the United States government April 1862. Mm-hmm. Within two weeks of the federal government moving into New Orleans, they are collecting income tax. So there's a pretty sophisticated system, right? You may fall through the cracks, right? Yeah. Um, But the fact is that they've got people on the ground that are already looking for revenue within two weeks. Wow. Uh, So I, I, I would, you know, I would say I'd characterize that as a pretty efficient system. I would say, I would say I can, I can, I can definitely understand the whole Dixie nostalgia a little more now. Yeah. The U.S. obviously something happened between 1840 and the Civil War that made us more attractive to investors from a debt standpoint. Was there anything specific we did differently or anything specific that, you know, encouraged those foreign investors that have been burned once to come back into the fray during the Civil War? Uh, the, the Well, so the, the Civil War itself is an interesting topic when it comes to foreign investment. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of evidence has seemed to point to the fact that foreigners pulled their money out of the United States during the war itself. Um, mm-hmm. My research seems to show that it's not, it wasn't as drastic as others kind of have claimed, but there's definitely, you know, a, a, I don't want to call it a decline, but it, it kind of levels off. And, and, and okay. you could say it's a decline relative to the vast expansion in debt, right? So the U S has a debt of $65 million in 1860 by the end of the war, it's 2.7 billion. So, uh, it's a huge expansion, but, um, Many, particularly British capitalists, are very reticent to uh, invest in the war. And that's partly because of their close ties to the South. 
And mm-hmm. I suppose this gets back to your question, really, and, and the, the fact that the, one of the changing dynamics, 1840s to 1860, of course, is the expansion of cotton uh, in the American South, the exports of cotton, the power that American cotton has on a global stage. Mm. So, um, you know, by the eve of the war, and, and even as the war begins, uh, members of the Confederacy are very confident, right, that the British will come in on their side because of the cotton ties. Uh, one Confederate uh, legislator will famously say, no one dares make war upon King Cotton with reference to foreign powers. So mm-hmm. there was this belief, right, that, that they could use cotton as a bargaining chip. Uh, with foreign powers and for the Confederacy, some of them, of course, are thinking that they are continuing the legacy of the revolution. Right? What's one of the defining characteristics of the American Revolution? It's the introduction of the French uh, on the side of you know, the continental forces that kind of tip the balance. Mm-hmm. And so, for many in the Confederacy, they think if only we can get the British and the French, perhaps others on board. Right, it will at least bring the United States government to the table. We can negotiate a peace, maybe have two different countries, maybe reunite under different circumstances. Was there also financing then, or, or did the Confederacy also, were they taking on debt at the same time? And, and was there a market for that? So Confederate debt is a little different. Um, so the, okay. the U.S. overwhelmingly pursues, and when I say the U.S., I mean you know the United States government, the North, yeah. they pursue uh debt uh, through bond issuance overwhelmingly. Okay. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, it's something like in the low 70s in terms of the percentage of the debt is going to be financed through bonds, right? So yep. it's a variety of bond issues during the war, ranging from 5% to 7.3%. Um, all these different bond issues that get gobbled up by a lot of Americans as well as some foreigners. Um, mm-hmm. And it really starts to take off after the war. Uh, that Civil War debt being purchased abroad. Half of the U.S. national debt is held abroad by 1869. Mm -hmm. For the Confederacy, slightly different story. Uh, They're going to try to print money as their way to kind of make their way through the war. And of course, Mm -hmm. when you, you know, churn out a lot of currency, um, this is mostly state currency, all different types, uh, you run the risk of hyperinflation. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I think is, is a, is a big fear now maybe, mm-hmm. or, or at least among some circles is a fear. And I, I want to maybe touch back on that as we get further along in the, uh, in, in, in American history. From what I'm hearing, like we can kind of break the U S debt or the, the story of U S debt into two phases so far, which is first is that, you know, post-revolutionary phase where we've taken on a lot of debt to finance the revolution. And from all, in, from all accounts, it looks like we, engage in an effort to pay that down. And then again, during the Civil War, we have this period where we rack up tremendous debt uh, due to the war. And again, it looks like if you start to, you know, peaks around the height of the Civil War or, or towards the end, and then you see this effort to uh, to pay it down again. And now it's not until World War One that we see that spike up again. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's worth noting that that income tax, although it, it is expanded in terms of who it applies to, it's gone within a decade. So, you know, this paying down of the debt uh, is, is not, you know, some people might think, well, they just, you know, are bringing in all this new tax revenue, income tax for the first time. They're not. 
that it's gone fairly quickly. It's, you know, it comes back again, obviously in the 20th century for good, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's not that there's just a lot of government surpluses. Again, you have to imagine a much smaller federal government. Yes. Um, then yes. we then our twenty first century, especially, but even parts of the twentieth century mind might be accustomed to. So, you know, you bring in a lot of you know tax receipts, and you bring in a lot of that uh, tariff revenue. It it, it mm-hmm. starts to pay it down, and that is a effort that's being made over the course of the back end of the nineteenth century. One of the things that happens in during the during the period of World War One as well, as we you know, again we start to rack up debt again, presumably to finance the war efforts. But this is also where the debt ceiling originates, correct? So, kind of debt ceiling one point right? Okay. So, um, you know, for for your listeners, right, it probably should have been stated earlier, and I apologize for that. But we can't imagine a debt ceiling in the nineteenth century. Every debt issue had to be authorized by Congress, right? Mm-hmm. So this originally was quite literally like line items, right? So you are allowing X amount for this, X amount for that. Eventually, right, they're allowed to, you know, pass a bill that says we need to raise $80 million through bond issues to cover mm-hmm. government expenses. But it is in the 20th century that you get... That, that debt ceiling that starts uh, to emerge, right? So the, the yep. formal debt ceiling that we know of today uh, really truly traces to 1939. Uh, but the first kind of iteration prior to that, most certainly it ties to World War I. Yeah. And, and now the basic principle behind the debt ceiling is rather than having this situation where every time we authorize any sort of outlay for anything – we have to account for it by legislation. The debt ceiling effectively says this is how much we can borrow and right. that money can be used for whatever purposes the government deems fit. Is correct. that correct? Yes. Congress has effectively ceded a little bit of control, but they also don't necessarily have to get bogged down in the details every time and it makes it easier to uh, to finance the government, keep things going. Is that right? Yeah, and that was partly the impetus behind it. They were just so frightened, yeah. you know, why are we spending all this time? Yeah, um, you know, they're in the weeds. We've got a lot of other things going on. The interesting thing too is, so you have that spike during World War One, and so far every spike has been around wars, but then you have the Great Depression, right? And and now what happens is there's there's almost this this ceiling of about thirty percent of GDP. So the debt never really gets over that amount in the period between 1790 and the end of World War One. Right during the Great Depression, that spikes up to over 40, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and there's this combination of the fact that we still have, you know, expenses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is in, in partly in the 20s, which, which, you know, predates the depression, but carries into it is the fact that, you know, there's pretty significant tax cuts uh, mm-hmm. in the 1920s. So you have, you know, the receipts that are going down. And then of course, by the time we get into the depression and by the early 1930s, we start to move towards the New Deal and government programs, which are going to increase, right? So as you aptly point out, it's really the first instance of non-wartime um, expansion in the debt to this significant of degree. This is something that's come up in a number of episodes over time. But I think the one thing we take for granted is that throughout 
American history, the role of the federal government has been something that has always been debated and always changed. Mm-hmm. And and would you say that during the Great Depression, that marks a period where our perception of the role of the federal government changes fundamentally for, to this institution that is designed for the common welfare as opposed to maybe what it was prior? I would say that that's certainly the case. I think fundamentally today, we are still wrestling with the legacy of a New Deal order, right? Yeah. So, uh, and those who think that it was fundamentally a good thing, those that think it was, uh, parts of it were necessary at the time, but in, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it became unnecessary or it's excessive. Some who would say that it wasn't necessary at the time, right? There were very mm-hmm. vocal people out opposed to the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Um, in Congress, for instance, in the 30s. But yeah, there's there's a shift here. And, and never again are we going to see a federal government footprint um, of the pre-New Deal order uh, ever yeah. again, right? So, um, and with that, with an expanded federal government comes, you know, expanded costs, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and then, right, add on top of that, of course, World War II. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that, you know, at that point, you're going to see it spiral even further. Um, yeah. And, and, and really, you know, it's going to be by 1946, right? The, that, you know, national debt is going to be something like 113% uh, debt to GDP ratio. So yep. uh, in 46. Yeah. And, and now the, the, so that next spike that comes during World War II just dwarfs every other spike in national debt. Right. And, and, the interesting thing that happens after that is, again, predictably, the debt starts to go down until, you know, let's call it the, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, and and kind of hits the floor at about a little under 30%. So right. at the former ceiling, uh, if, if you're talking historically. But the interesting thing, and I'd be interested in your comment on this, is that this also marks a period where the entire global monetary system effectively denominates itself in dollars, right? Correct. So, yeah. yeah. So we have the Bretton Woods Agreement that effectively establishes the U.S. dollar as kind of the de facto currency for global transactions. Mm-hmm. Did, did that? Does that have an impact on our ability to finance debt and our ability to look at debt? Or, I mean, it, it definitely has an effect on uh, the ability to, to finance the debt. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's certainly kind of without debate. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the other fact we, we do have to, to wrestle with, right, that the reason partly why we see a decline of this debt and this magnitude is a very vibrant income tax, mm-hmm. uh, the, the highest that the U.S. will, will see. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's and it's bipartisan in its support. Um, that's that's worth noting as well. One of the highest, uh, you know, increases at the top tier for that income tax comes under Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican. So yeah. there's this belief in the 20th century, right? So it's a period of tremendous economic growth, longest mm-hmm. sustained economic growth for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with some noticeable little blips in there, of course. But uh, when you've got substantial, you know, tax revenue coming in. Uh, that helps to offset what's going on. But the fact that the Bretton Woods Agreement occurs, of course, yes, it's going to play a huge role in helping to uh, finance American debt uh, and yeah. to make it appealing and make it a safe harbor uh, for international investment, which it's still known as today. 
Um, yeah. Where people tuck their money into U.S. securities and U.S. treasuries um, if you want to keep it safe. Yeah. And for those maybe who aren't up to speed on this, you know, as it stands today, thanks to the Bretton Woods agreement, it, it effectively owning U.S. dollars is a necessity if yeah. you're going to do business globally. And so it, when we talk about, for example, China buying up tons of U.S. debt, the reason for that is because they need that debt. They need that debt to do business globally. They need that debt to keep their currency at the level it's at. Right. Uh, and and we kind of have the luxury of not having to worry about that. Yeah. But you know, I'm super interested in this whole the whole concept of this uh, of this bi- this bipartisan support yeah. for taxation, which is which is fascinating in and of itself. Uh, what was the pol- what generated the political will? Was it just the sense that you know the war's over and where we have this common mission? And was was that what did it, or you know what what got everybody it, behind well, that idea? In part, I mean, but there was. I mean, we have to understand a fundamental, um, almost like a, f- a frame of mind, a belief that you you know. The government, you owed the government money as a citizen, that this was mm-hmm. part of your commitment to a public good almost, right? So one okay. of the most famous instances uh, in the post-war period that I always like to point to is, is Mitt Romney's father, uh, mm-hmm. who's a big executive uh, in Detroit uh, mm-hmm. at the time, auto executive, wants his taxes to be higher, Right? Mm-hmm. And so we hear that from time to time today, the Warren Buffets of the world, right? Who say, yeah. you know, tax me more. Um, but, you know, making this, and, and he was no Democrat at the time, right? Um, but he's, he says that this is a necessity in order to have a fully functioning society, right? That doesn't mean that there weren't uh, those opposed to this, that there wasn't tremendous tension over things like uh, labor relations, for instance, mm-hmm. right? So we're going to see huge battles over the power of unions, the rights of unions during this time period. They will reach their peak and then, you know, start a decline uh, in terms of actual membership and things like that in the United States. But so it wasn't kumbaya, right? Not everybody's holding yeah. hands about everything, but uh, there's this fundamental difference uh, over the idea of, of what taxes are uh, and government spending involved, and, and how you um, help to build an economy. Um, and, and the big tra- transition point, and I think that's where we're getting, of course, is mm-hmm. uh, the Reagan era, right? So yes. Reaganomics, or this idea that you've got, quote unquote, you know, tax and spend liberals, um, and that what you need to do is pursue, uh, you know, Reaganomics, this idea of trickle down economics, right? So mm-hmm. you're going to see a huge slashing of uh, income tax rates under uh, Reagan, right? So mm-hmm. his vice president, the late George Herbert Walker Bush, famously labeled it voodoo economics before he became part of the administration. But mm-hmm. uh, the fact that it gets cut, but then it has to be raised several times, his in- the income tax rates uh, showed in order to kind of try and make up for some of that government shortfall, uh, this is a transition point. And this is where we start to see that Right, debt to GDP ratio start to take off because you've got Reagan on the one hand cutting mm-hmm. taxes, but on the other hand, right, he's trying to win the Cold War, particularly with a very, very large Defense Department. Yeah, and that's and that again for the for the folks who are listening and maybe haven't looked at the chart yet. So we have this huge spike during World War II. It goes down to a low, and then during the Reagan era, you see this steady climb. 
and that doesn't stop until sometime around 2000 when uh, when Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress balanced the budget. Right. So, well, balanced it at you know 30 percent of GDP uh, debt to GDP ratio. There's a couple things that have, that are going on <clears throat> that I'm finding really interesting. Number one, you know, during the Great Depression, we effectively redefine the role of the federal government. Yeah. So what was once, let's call it maybe a scrappy, lean and mean federal government that stayed out of the business of mo- or stayed out of most people's lives. Uh, we have an increased government role when it comes to employment and when it comes to the economy, when it comes to the welfare of the citizens. And that expansion never really disappears. So, because again, if you look at when the debt was paid down during World War II, it it really kind of rests not that far below where the, the New Deal uh, budgets were. And right. so there's, it's almost like that expansion never disappeared. And so in, in a lot of ways we have, we've all taken for granted the size of the federal government and the role it plays. Uh, and, and I would say that that battle is still raging on today, but you know, the second part of that, that I find really interesting is the fact that we how we finance our government now is entirely reliant on a currency that countries need that other people need abroad and that we control the supply of so we are almost in this situation today where it seems like and i i don't want to say that we can't default but it almost seems like the the risks that debt pose at, in and of themselves in terms of just raw amounts aren't as great as where we spend our money effectively and where we allocate funds. And do we decide as a, as a country, do we decide that the way we pay for our obligations is to take money out of the economy in the form of taxes? Or is the way we do that to take on additional debt and use that to finance investments that'll pay off in the future. And it seems like that's kind of the core of the debate today. Yeah. Any thoughts there? I well, know yeah, through- no, I, 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 I see where you're going. And I think that was, you know, that's a huge part of the debate. I would argue in the nineties and yeah. during the, the Bush administration, George W. Bush uh, was, you know, right. Fundamental differences, right. You have, you still have some, some degree of kind of, Reaganomics adherents uh, mm-hmm. that that are there um, and that don't like this idea of, of taxation, uh, particularly at the upper levels. Even though Clinton helps bring it back up to thirty nine and a half percent for that top income bracket, but um, you know, I think we're really, frankly, in an uncharted waters now because you've yeah. got um, a. The, you know, a, a Republican Party that had long promoted the idea of fiscal responsibility, um, mm-hmm. helping in part, you know, and it, it is bipartisan, I will say, you know, pass these huge budgets, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, allegedly, right, you had a whole group of a wave of congressmen who come in during the Obama administration as part of this quote unquote Tea Party movement. And we could have a lot of debate about that and kind of why they came in. But one of the things, at least publicly, they're saying is that spending has to get back under control. 
Um, and of course, you know, the, the last budget that got passed a few weeks back, right. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, is what 1.4 trillion, I think. Uh, yeah. and, and we're seeing, you know, the fact that that coupled with the latest tax cuts, uh, from the current administration means, um, that the national debt just continues to rise. It's over $23 trillion now. Um, mm-hmm. and when you think about it, uh, you know, that's, that's a huge increase just from a standpoint of a number from, say, 20 years ago. Now, at the top of the episode, I asked you all if you'd want to live in any of the historical periods where the national debt was at its lowest. And I'll give you my answer. No. The two periods where the national debt fell below 5% of GDP ended with the Civil War and the Great Depression. And now, Correlation doesn't equal causation, but we can certainly wipe reducing the national debt off the list as a panacea for prosperity. Now, the argument around our national debt seems to have more to do with the level of involvement we want the federal government to have in our lives. Our our debt to GDP ratio hasn't fallen below 30% since FDR instituted the New Deal, and many of the sacred cows in our national budget such as our military and social security depend on a level of spending that will always have us carrying some amount of debt. And it really gets back to our episode on military spending where we were forced to ask the question, do we want the world's largest military, a social safety net, low debt, or low taxes? Because we can't have them all at the same time. Now, you might say no one would argue that the current rate of increase in our national debt is sustainable, but that is where you'd be wrong. There's a new line of economic thought called modern monetary theory that says any country that issues debt in its own currency, such as the United States, can't default on its debt because it can just print more money to pay its obligations. And I know it sounds like the drink your way to six-pack abs school of economics, but there's a bit more nuance to it. And so I've asked economist Greg Hanskin on to next week's episode to explain in full. Also, one final note, as of next week, you can get additional reading material and listen to past episodes on our website, ydhty.com. That is an abbreviated form of you don't have to yell if you already didn't figure that out. I'll have notes for all future episodes, including this one, and additional material for you to chow down on. So please join me there. As always, theme music courtesy of FellerTech, editing, and other sound-related stuff courtesy of my producer, Jason Putney, the R2 to my D2. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off. <laughs>